I'll do a quick intro. We'll just jump right in. This is Accelerator Insider. Um, it's a show really focused on talking to MDs uh, uh, in the innovation space um, who are leading the charge, thinking about uh, the future of business and startup um, and innovation in their cities and across the country. Um, and so I really excited to have you here to kind of kick off this series that we're doing um, to, you know, I think you've had a lot of experience in the space and can really speak to really a journey here of like what you've seen in the startup landscape and thought it'd be great to kick off with you to kind of share what you're seeing also um, in Atlanta and uh, New Orleans, which is a unique kind of uh, place. Uh, we usually see startups in Boston and San Francisco and New York. And so I think um, you'll have some additional context for, I think, most of the folks who don't live in those cities for looking about how to build companies, um, you know, across the rest of the country. So thank you so much for joining this morning. Um, everyone knows about you, so I'm not going to go through your LinkedIn. Like we don't need to hear all that. We know we know everything about you from that perspective. But I would um, love to start the conversation um, with talking a little bit about um, some of your strategic leadership uh, roles. Um, so. Um, You've held a couple of different roles in about six companies, I think, all re resulting in acquisition. And mm -hmm. so I would love to just kind of get your thoughts on, you know, what was that experience like? What were some of the big takeaways you have from going through six acquisitions, which I think people think are, is really awesome? You know, what, were they all awesome um, or were there challenges? So overall, I had a really unique perspective on the journey to those acquisitions, either leading partnerships or revenue. So being at the tail at sort of the very beginning of that engagement, and then seeing how it evolves over time, and both what that means for the value proposition of the company internally, externally. And as a result, there's a lot that I share with our founders about how to think early on about the value of partnerships, um, about strategic partnerships, about how these relationships often begin. And so the importance of truly thinking of everyone as a customer. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when we talk about that founder's journey, there are some founders who truly are passionate about solving the problem. And so regardless of who's at the helm of solving that problem, they are just happy to see the idea take flight and grow. And then there are some founders who, in addition to being passionate about the problem, are very passionate about the way in which their startup comes to life and operates. And I think that can be challenging as they're planning for optionality. You know, one is you continue to lead the organization. The other is you lead it to a certain point and you hand off the reins and perhaps you um, stay involved, but not in an operator's capacity or a world in which you exit it all together. And as you go through that process of acquisition, um, you know, the ownership and the utility of the product and the company and what it means, that's something you also necessarily have to uh, realize you're not in the driver's seat around. So I think it's a really interesting business motion. It's a really great way to think of maximizing the exit opportunities you have as a founder. So I've been on that path, both through going and going through an acquisition and going through an IPO. And I think it's also important for founders early on, just to think about their own expectations and how they're orienting themselves within this founder's journey, knowing that that could be an outcome. And so 
so I love that. I think it's super helpful because I think the insight there is like as early as you kind of can understand it as a founder, how do you start to think about what that growth looks like and what your role in that growth will be? Do you have anything from your experience that you feel like kind of um, telltale sales of like, this is going to work out pretty well, or this is actually going to be pretty painful in terms of the journey of acquisition or IPO? I, I think the journey is always you know, there's always friction, it's always painful. But then overall, I think there's a there's a great feeling of having achieved something and brought this thing to an, an, a very specific and, and hard one milestone. So I think it's a mixture of both. And that's where we sort of go back to the importance of founder resilience. It's being able to live in a world where you're going to vacillate between these like two very polarizing emotions. Right. And so this so I love that you're talking about this because I think this narrative of like resilience is really interesting, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I, a lot of times the founders who, you know, they go through their story, like they're whatever they want to pitch their deck or whatnot. And I think to myself, okay, like I'm only looking for two things in your story, probably most likely. One is like, do you care enough about the problem um, that like you can be resilient through the journey of entrepreneurship. And the second one is, do you have founder industry fit? Like how closely aligned are you to the industry to be able to build relationships and, and, and channel partners and the, and the like? Um, how do you cue for resiliency? Like, what are you looking for? Like, how do you know that that's going to show up? It's, it's like one of the hardest things to assess, right? Um, but love to get your thoughts on like how you see that. So founder market fit is... I would say that's the easiest one because that's where we sort of ask them like, hey, pretend you're right. Pretend you're interviewing for the role as CEO in, for this startup and tell me why you're the right fit. Uh, for founder resilience, it's one of those things that some might argue you can't show resilience until you've had opportunities to, to display it. But I think just in terms of how founders tell you the story of how they came to be interested in the problem, how they pursued it, how they thought about validating um, insights. I think validation actually tells us a lot about resilience because mm-hmm. it tells us a lot about how founders take feedback. And there's, I've never, I've yet to meet a founder that got it a hundred percent right um, from inception to what it looked like when let's say they finally got into uh, the Techstars program. Um, and so having them talk about just, the iterative process they've gone through to date. And then if it seems like that process has been really smooth, what that tells me is that for whatever reason, they haven't gone above and beyond to challenge their assumptions. And then if you start to pose some challenging questions that can start to come out, right? How are you um, interpreting this data in real time? And are you approaching it with curiosity and wanting to figure out what this means for how you've oriented yourself and in, in the problem that you're solving? Or am I immediately feeling pushback to anything that feels like it um, could conflict with your with your current view of the market and of your product and of your customer? I think that's like one of the best ways I've heard someone articulate that. So thank you for that, Melissa. That's the gen. That will be that will be the cut (laughs) on the little audio cuts. I think that's like a super hard thing to contextualize and 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 folks really don't know what it means. And Mm -hmm. I think the fact that you're what you're referencing is like the pressure testing of an idea and your ability to release kind of control over it, the fact that it's your idea. And actually, in fact, you have to share the idea with the customer is like a really, and so I always tell people like, if you want to build something for yourself, like that's okay, like go do that. That's 
usually it's what we call a hobby for the most part. Mm -hmm. um, and so, but if you want to do something for others, right, you really have to be flexible and to your point, care about the problem more than even the solution as it will, it will morph based on the feedback that you receive. Right. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, that's, that's spot on. So I, I love that you shared that. Um, and so every innovator has a thesis and, um, I, I know from your website that you have a thesis and I also want to kind of expand it a little bit um, underneath, like within the Techstars kind of umbrella as well in terms of what you're looking for um, in, the, in the in participants in the program. So from my understanding, it's commerce, consumer, climate, and the creator economy. Um, and so that's correct. what do you think people, so first of all, they're all kind of distinct. I don't know where, I don't know where you're seeing, um, opportunities for overlap in, in those industries, mm -hmm. but then also like, what do you think maybe people miss in the space in terms of any of these categories? Where are the missing opportunities that you think people are just like dismissing or not thinking are really the opportunity of the future? Yeah, so the way that we thought of thesis design is we actually started with the founder and where can we help? And so when you think of what a founder needs to be successful, it's really two things. Well, it's three, but you kind of bucket into two. So the two big things is access to capital and access to customers. And the third is access to talent. But if you get the access to capital, that kind of, kind of should help solve most of the talent problem. Um, and so then we had to ask ourselves, okay, if we look at our network, because truly the most valuable part of what we're doing at the accelerator and, you know, how a founder should really be evaluating fit for them is what's the, what's the net value I'm going to get here that I can't get anywhere else. So not that it's not valuable, but I just distinctly cannot get it anywhere else. And I think that's truly network. That's our investor network. That's our mentor network. Our mentor network is full of investors and operators and subject matter experts. And so when I look at my specific background as an operator, it's always been within what I would bucket as that commerce technology space. And it feels really broad, but I'll, I'll explain it in a minute. Mm -hmm. I think I tried to make it robust enough to help people understand where they might or might not fit in. But I think there's always opportunity for refinement. And I love alliteration, so everything starts with a C. Um, but so broadly, it was commerce technology, right? Everything from the e-com platforms to MarTech platforms that helped um, you know, with the conversion to the CRM and, and the payments. Mm -hmm. And I would say that's the entire ecosystem of enablement technologies that facilitate commerce, whether it happens in person and retail or online. Yeah. So that's, you know, and then when we think about consumer, I think because I spent so long in the commerce technology space and even some time working with quite, you know, some of the largest tier one brands in the world, um, through an e-com agency, there's also proximity to consumer and what makes for a great consumer brand. And we believe really strongly in the power of brand and community building there. Creator economy is really the democratization of commerce tech. So it can be things even like the Etsy platform that helps the individual monetize their hobbies. And climate tech has been, there's been a really interesting evolution because when we think holistically about what our investments in the commerce and commerce enablement space, and when we also think about our thesis for investing in underserved communities and in underrepresented founders, we can't talk about commerce without talking about its impact on climate tech. And I think there's mm -hmm. a huge opportunity for anyone who's solving for both of those in a really new and novel way. So, you know, what we think is often overlooked in this space is that 
we have a really simple, really, really simple outlook litmus test on mm-hmm. how we decide if something's interesting. Um, global commerce has made it such that you can, it, it's democratized access to opportunities and it's made it mm-hmm. such that you can buy goods from anyone anywhere. But mm-hmm. the journey that we're all on with uh, our online brand presence, with how we think about structuring our commerce tech stack is we're trying to replicate that experience of, I walk into a shop, I have a conversation with the proprietor about their brand, their store, the product, build this relationship, buy the good, I go home and now I'm a customer for life. Um, and so we think what people really miss is the power of community that underpins mm-hmm. all of that. And so we constantly are asking ourselves, what's the secret sauce for community and brand that you're building? And, and if you're enabling a brand, how are you helping them build an, an enduring brand? That's awesome. I, I love this conversation, particularly. And also, I know we have some listeners and, and such, so feel free to drop your questions in and we can also answer questions as we go or at the end as well. Um, but you know, I, I recently saw this article about, um, it was a woman who had founder of a company. She just left it. Um, it was a consumer brand. I don't remember the brand it was just yesterday on LinkedIn, but she, they raised $20 million series A. And as a founder, she stepped out. And one of the big things she said was that, you know, um, as a creator herself, that her uh, approach was not really aligned with the venture approach. Even though they were raising venture capital in the process of doing that, it kind of, uh, I guess, you know, the artist's opinion was shifted in a sense. And, and she felt like it wasn't really representative of kind of what she was trying to get across as a creator. And so I love that you're talking about the intersection of the two. How do you think about the creator economy from a venture perspective? Are there certain types of creator economy uh, companies that kind of make sense for venture and then those that really don't uh, fit that thesis in a sense? So I would say the creators themselves, or at least from my perspective, are probably not the best fit for venture investment, but the platforms that facilitate how their product or content or goods are created, marketed, sold, and maintained are. And I think sometimes there's a bit of confusion in understanding which bucket you fit in, primarily because the founder profile for a lot of creator economy companies is, you know, I'm a creator, I have this problem, and now I'm solving this problem for others. And so the decoupling between the creator and what they've created can be challenging. Yeah, no, I mean, particularly, it's it's very interesting, because you're getting this whole influx of, I guess, this Gen Z, but I don't even think it's Gen Z anymore. I think it's really happening everywhere, where folks are Mm -hmm. like, well, I can just go and, which, they always could hypothetically, right? I could just go and just build a regular company the regular way without venture capital. And and, and because social has re- provided a space for rapid growth, now I'm, we're, we're seeing mimics of what venture capital can do from a growth perspective in regular kind of creator consumer um, companies. Mm-hmm. And, and then, but is their identity that's really tied to it, right? So like, yeah, they're building, they may have a great product brand that they scaled up uh, to millions of dollars, but like it's still their face on it. Right. And so then all of a sudden it's like it's it's if they go the venture route, they're kind of losing some of the identity and then it impacts how they're perceived. And so there's like this really deep tie in that makes it really hard to decouple to your point. And so there's like and so do you have any thoughts about about this in terms of um, venture? I think venture capital has become in a weird way, maybe the new tech, like we're, we're like the most innovative people live in a sense and, and kind of people mm-hmm. want to go um, that direction. But what are your thoughts about venture versus non-venture companies now that we're seeing so many 
creator companies just grow massively on their own. Yeah. I've worked with venture backable companies and bootstrap companies on venture backable. And I think what we often overlook is that the species of venture scale businesses is new and it's few, but I think what we would traditionally call a main street business has kind of been what's driven much of the economy for forever. And so I don't necessarily see a premium on one versus the other. I see a tremendous opportunity in that there's, it's really hard to gauge risk and valuation for, for venture businesses. So there's an opportunity for us specifically to encourage and be a part of these moon sh- these moonshot ideas and these rocket ships. But there was a balance between the two. If you think of who are all the customers, right? So specifically in the commerce tech space, who are all the customers for those every SaaS company within the commerce tech vertical? Well, mm-hmm. it's all of the brands. And are all of those brands venture backable? Probably not. If I was to describe Macy's, any investor, you know, any of those big department stores, they say like, no, what's the moat here? Absolutely not. Right, right, <laughs> right. The time is the times have changed, really, and, and I think mm-hmm. it's and, and opening yeah. up in, in in some really interesting ways because I and I say that because you know, TechStars obviously is, is kind of venture focused, but not every mm-hmm. company in TechStars has to take. The, the, um, the funding from Techstars to be in the Techstars program. No, they do. Um, they do. Oh, they do. Okay. Because I, yeah, from, maybe that's a new, well, now I know. I've been with Techstars about 10 years. And I know that wasn't always the, the case, but now they have to take that money for the equity as a part of the agreement within Techstars. Even better. So this actually is a perfect place to talk a little bit of Brass, uh, brass Taxi, a little bit about the program itself, actually. Um, so love to just get your like top line, like, hey guys, if you don't know, now you know. Here's what we do. Here's how we work. Here's how many companies we have in the program. Here are the programs that we have. We can do a little bit of that so people can get that information. Um, do you just want to share a little bit about the programs within Atlanta and uh, NOLA? Yeah. So I look after our programs both in Atlanta and New Orleans, both powered by JP Morgan. And for both of the programs, we're investing in founders who are building the future of commerce technology, consumer brands, creator economy tech, and climate tech. Um, we're also really interested in making sure that our pipeline represents the diversity of our industry. Uh, And we expect as a result that our final roster of founders also represents that diversity. And so we're really mindful about um, how we source and how we also make sure that the programming is as equitable and as inclusive as possible. The programs are 13 weeks. We run uh, two to three programs a year, and each class is somewhere between 12 and 24 companies in size. Awesome. And do you guys have any? And our, and our applications for, sorry, I forgot, for the next class, it starts in March, actually open next week. So that's for oh. Techstars Atlanta. Yeah, Techstars okay, Atlanta. Good to know. You can apply starting next week. Oh, that's wonderful. I have some names. I have to send yeah. some folks over. Okay, perfect. I, um, wonderful. Yeah. So with that being said, um, so I know in the past, like uh, every program, Techstars has a lot of programs and they kind of, they, I know there's a lot of work being done to kind of standardize a little bit of the approach. Wanted to just do a pulse check. Do you guys, are you within the team that's supporting the companies? Do you guys still have kind of like the the mentors and residents or the product folks? Are those people still part of yeah, the staffing so, support? Yeah, so our program, we 
focus on two things through programming. We focus on go-to-market acceleration, and that should help you take care of the customer part or scaling your customer acquisition activities. And we also help you prepare your investor um, readiness strategy and taking care of the sort of the capital end of what you're going to need as a founder to be successful. And then the programming is really complemented by our network. And so members of our network include mentors. And again, mentors are subject matter experts. They're operators. Sometimes they're angel investors. We have our network of investors, both institutional and angel. Um, and then we also have a number of different roles in residence. And every program varies a little bit, but there's always some sort of investor in residence, an entrepreneur in residence, maybe a chief product officer in residence. Uh, truly what we do, at least our team, as we look at programming class to class is there is a general thesis for the program, but we're always looking at the composition of the startups within that class and the assessments that we've made and the investment memos that we've written and really asking ourselves what's the content and what is the sort of the network that and how does that need to shift specifically to support their needs? Gotcha. Gotcha. And that's super helpful because I know a long time ago uh, when I was supporting the Boston um, program, they had um, not in this, not exactly the same structure per se, but they did kind of have mm -hmm. folks at different expertise. It wasn't kind of called out loud, but they were all mentors yeah. and residents that would be there with the program. Like they could be in the space, they'd be supportive and they had a product person that would help with design and so on. And just some extra support, some technical extra support for some questions, like, things like that. So that's still part of the program model fundamentally and how you mm -hmm. do it as an MD is how you yeah. guys structure it. That's awesome. Yeah. Good to know. So that's, that's, I think that's a huge perk because most accelerators do not have that component. And I think a lot, most don't have actual right. capital. And most of these are also individuals you have to go find, convince to mentor you. You probably right. have to give each of them some equity. We kind of, we make that process through the network really, really easy. Exactly. Exactly. I think that's like the, the really the value there of Techstars. Um, and so we'd love to know, um, so as an MD for Techstars, Atlanta and NOLA, um, how do you deploy what you think of as your superpowers to help increase success of the founders in your program? Yeah, so it comes down to the areas that the industries we want to invest in, the focus, right? So my background as an operator is really focused on go-to-market. So we have a really heavy emphasis on go-to-market. Then I've also spent some time both as an angel investor and as an institutional investor. So that informs a lot of the investor strategy. And, you know, when we think about network, it really comes down to, it's really all about the relationships you're building with your managing director, with your mentors, because for your, for the network to work, it's not enough to know someone. They have mm -hmm. to trust you. You have to have credibility because Every time you make an introduction to someone, every time you sort of vouch for someone to an investor, to a mentor, you're sort of saying, I've put my stamp, my imprimatur, um, you know, on this individual. And so that's why we encourage our founders all through all conversations to think of everyone sort of as their customer think of everyone as a potential stakeholder for them um, and be really mindful about how they're building network. And so, you know, as I think about how I leverage my superpowers, I think there's the tactical stuff that I can help with. Um, and then it's really about extending my network and the broader Techstars network to our founders um, in support of helping them reach their next milestones. And what do you, 
what do you look for in founders that you're supporting, that you're vouching for, that you're helping to, you know, connect with folks? You know, what are you looking for? Yeah, so we're generally looking for all of the same, you know, team, TAM, timing, technology, traction, all that good stuff. And then it's then it comes down to when we say founder market fit and we talk about resilience, there's also a big part um, in there that's just is this a team? Is this a founder that I believe in and that I want to support in the best of times and in the worst of times? Because I believe in their ability to execute and I believe in their vision of how this this world is, is challenged and different. And so, you know, I really look for founders who have a unique story that ties them to the problem that they're solving because I don't think you can successfully go on that entire founder's journey without having some sort of passion or deep sense of meaning that ties you to the problem that you're solving. Yeah, yeah for sure. I think that makes tons of, uh, tons of sense. And then um, maybe kind of a, maybe more of a future kind of trend question. So since you've been really deeply involved in this space for a very long time, um, what trends or shifts do you see in the tech and entrepreneurial landscape that you think maybe could impact both startups and investors in the near future? Um, and if so, you know what those are, how are you preparing for those changes? So I think we always see a little bit of a balance between your founders who either have the experience and background as the customer that they're solving the problem for, or, and what we're seeing specifically during these economic cycles are founders that have the perspective of, I was solving this for the enterprise, or, you know, in a really vertical way within a broader product stack. And now I want to do this in a, in a scrappy way on my own for SMB, or I see a better way to build this. And some of those um, may or may not lend themselves to creating more new categories and category leaders and others to really helping the enablement of existing industries. So I think the founder profiles and I think how the economic cycles sort of change where founders are coming from. Are there people who are looking for their next entrepreneurial act? Maybe they've been, um, maybe they've left their role or they've been impacted by our riff versus, you know, times where we see more, um, more founders really focus on innovation. And then I think the other big trends we're going to see, and it's actually a really good thing, I'm personally really interested to see how it continues to evolve is alternative um, forms of financing for venture backable companies, right? So um, VC equity, it's one form of financing. We tell founders that it's really good for some things and like don't use it for other things like running Facebook ads. And um, as an industry as a whole, as we understand more about the risk profile and performance, I think there are going to be new credit models developed and new products offered to help founders at different stages of their journey. And that's really exciting because that means more support in different forms, which is going to mean more entrepreneurship. And I think we can all agree that more entrepreneurship is a really good thing. Well, I look actually want to key into what you just said, because I actually have a couple of examples of founders who did what you're saying not to do, which is they took their venture money and they had to spend it on Facebook ads, or they think yeah. that's what they're supposed to be doing. And so um, particularly, actually, in both cases of te technical founders who have a story of I just build the tech and then I just I pay for the sales, um, which is like a boil the ocean strategy, which is very expensive and doesn't really work, um, or, or non technical founders who think 
that to get in front of the customer, they have to be doing tons of ads. Um, talk me through like, so how should they be doing that? Yeah, they should, they should be using venture money for those things, but they have to do them. How should they solve that problem? Is that from revenue or how do you think about that? Yeah, you know, I think there's not a silver, there's not necessarily a silver bullet blanket advice for everyone. I think it really comes down to, and one of the things that we especially focus on with our founders during program is understanding their unit economics and tying those into their KPIs and key milestones and, you know, really understanding what's the cost of these different sources of capital, what's the sort of ROI or scale that you're getting from different categories of investments, um, and what are your big goals, what are your big milestones, what do you need to unlock to get to that next level, and so I would say in all cases, probably not always don't use your venture money to run Facebook ads, but I'm sure there are some founders who are saying, we just need to make it to this threshold of revenue to be able to fundraise. And we might not spend all of it. We're going to use a little bit of it here. And that's probably going to actually be really smart once they've taken into context the entirety of, you know, their startup's financial picture. Yeah. I mean, what I love to usually, what, what I kind of know as a flag and kind of what I look, look for is not that they are going to use ads or not, but that they have a strategy that's comprehensive mm -hmm. and that inside of that sits ads. But if the first thing they say is, but we're going to do ads. And I'm like, well, yeah, that's like, that's like the le the, the last place you want to start. Right. <laughs> you know? Like, how are you going to, but you're also like, how are you going to re retain those new customers? What's your community plan? What's your engagement plan? How are you exactly. going to get them to be repeat customers? Exactly. And, and you know, and, and if you, I think you probably see this as well for most companies, if, um, if they are, I always tell folks like, you can accelerate through the steps of growth, but you might not be able to skip a step of growth in a sense. Like there's like kind of like a building mm -hmm. blocks that happen in, in building a company that you kind of really can't mm, skip so much, but you can speed it up for sure. And one of those is like when you go from that MVP to pilot to market entry into like a kind of a full go to market in that, that journey, hopefully you're building some channel partners or some sales partners or some, you know, pathways to um, customer bases that don't require that you have to use ads as your sole way to engage with the customer. I feel like some now, depending on the company, um, I feel like that could be a lopsided approach sometime if it's fully tech and they've not spent any time over here, but you don't, you don't know until you know the company, like how they're building and the timing for build and all these different components. But I always kind of look to say, well, even if you have to use a lot of ads, like there has to be something else you can also do. Um, and if mm -hmm. not to your point of like, just being thoughtful about leverage you get to pull to generate revenue. If the only thing we can pull is something that's an expense, then we're not really building any kind of way to build, I guess how would I say like asset, like using your own asset to actually like drive sales. So there's, you're kind of pulling mm -hmm. it on the expense, but you're not really creating a true revenue driver at the same time. Um, but I don't know, there's just some thoughts. I don't know if you have any kind of, it's just more of a generic, but do you have any thoughts on that? approach? No, like I mean, I think, I think those are all really astute observations. And so my question that I always think is, what are the opportunities that we have to get founders really comfortable with this way of viewing their business? Because your background as a founder is also going to impact, you know, how you view the business, what's a priority, and what are the inputs that you use for decision making. And so for example, if you're wholly focused on building the product and iterating on the product, we want to make sure that we're highlighting early on that your unit economics can't be an afterthought. There's something that you should be thinking about in parallel. And so they're all, you know, they're all great things to consider. They're all great conversations to have. And I think, you know, step one is continuing to bring this dialogue to the forefront. So founders know it's important.
Yeah, for sure. And like, and to your point, I think there's a thousand ways to build a business. So there isn't a right answer mm -hmm. at all. And there, there never is, but it's, do you have, what I always look for, and what I always try to impart and at least try to share when I work with founders is how can I give you enough information around the logic, kind of the logic model, the decision-making processes, you can come to the best decision for you. Like you have all the inputs to make a really good informed decision for you at your current, you know, place, space, time, resource, interest, energy, but whatever that is, like, do you have enough of the pieces to put together a puzzle for yourself? So there's not a right answer. There's all answers. And it's like, which one makes sense for you at this, at this current intersection? Um, I have a couple more questions, but one I opened up, I know there's about 10 people listening. If you have a question, please drop it in the chat. Um, would love to hear from you guys um, as well. Thank you, um, John, for your comment. Um, but yeah, if you have any questions for Melissa, uh, please drop them in about Techstars or her background. And I have a couple more um, before we uh, close it out. Um, so with that being said, um, would love to know um, for like in terms of kind of moving into more how you think about your journey, um, what is something new that you've learned over the last 12 months? I'm constantly learning new things. One of the most interesting things that I've recently learned, because it's not something I specifically spent um, a ton of time on in my career in life, is really understanding the nuances and the in and outs of municipal bonds. And in our current class, we have this incredible founder, Damon is the CEO of Munivestor, and he is really reinventing municipal bonds, both as a security and also how people how retail investors think of buying into them and adding them as part of their portfolio. And I didn't realize actually shared this incredible story about how the first iteration of municipal bonds, like it's the, what do they call it? was the unit of measure that they used mm -hmm. to trade people in the United States. And that was something that I had no idea about. Wow. And just so, so really going through how even the structure it exists today, how, how layered and how nuanced it is. Um, and that has been, that's something that was one, you always feel very special when someone shares, you know, their, their journey and he had some family stories tied to that. And so uh, that's a really sacred thing to be able to, to learn someone's family's uh, history, but also just really eye opening. Um, we often don't think of things like different securities as being sort of many layered and, and having that sort of weight and historical context to it. So it's been really interesting. And I understand even more his perspective and passion for driving innovation, specifically in the, in the municipal bond space, right? So that founder why, that's something that gets you fired up. If like municipal bonds weren't maybe the most exciting thing to you before, you're like, I want to learn more. This is super interesting. Yes. No, I, I, uh, I, I was saying something the other day, like, um, I really geeked out on like, the tax code the other day. <laughs> and so I, mm -hmm. I bought like the, the, I'm like reading it like legit, like the, like two huge books and like a, like a, a guided reader tool. And even though they get updated every couple of years, whatever else, but it's fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating. Mm -hmm. and, and you kind of, there's so many things I think as founders and as people that we have somewhere in our journey, we learn like, oh, that isn't for me, or I don't really care about this, or maybe this isn't really that interesting. Or, and all of a sudden you kind of like look at it with fresh eyes. You're like, wait a minute. There's like so much here that mm -hmm. it's just, it, to the point of timing. It's like when those things are interesting to your experience, um, how they can really shift your perspective on things. Right. I think, um, is the, and I mean, you're and also, you, you know, you're a revenue girl. So like you definitely, um, 
that's probably speaking your language a little bit <laughs> as well. Mm -hmm. um, and so from that, also from that perspective, since you have been in that space, obviously working with companies from the beginning, but also much larger companies, what are some of the things that that you kind of cue or see that you think is helpful for early stage founders when it comes to growth and revenue, since that's really where your background, where you've kind of built this base of knowledge around? Really around understanding your funnel metrics um, and understanding funnel metrics. This really is an exercise in grounding founders in the discipline of what are your leading indicators? So when you tell me that your revenue goal is you need to get to 250K and, you know, um, ARR, and we're going to say like, all right, well, how many customers do you need to get to that? And how many leads do you need to get to a customer? And where do your leads come from? How do you know if your process is working or not? How do you know when you are flipping the switch from experimentation now to something that's scalable and repeatable? And I think that in there is really the stuff of the venture scale business. It's how do you understand when you're running experiments and when you've got something scalable and repeatable and understanding the two and what mode you're in and what that means for your strategy um, and even your burn are, are really different things. Yes, and, and the, I have like 85,000 more questions about that, but <laughs> um, so a question from John. So what are you excited to see further development for Atlanta and New Orleans as a founder market? Um, and may trend up in, and are, are things that you also might see trend up in other hubs as well outside of Atlanta and New Orleans? Yeah. So I think about what are the centers of excellence that emerge for each city. So for example, we see New York is really a big city for, um, FinTech startups, for example. And I would say you've got a lot of more finance business talent there. Atlanta has historically really been known for sales and marketing talent. Boston's really well known for product talent, so on and so forth. And so for all ecosystems as they grow and develop, that's something that's always really interesting for me. So what is the emerging, um, what's the emerging sort of talent specialty and what does that mean for the types of businesses that will start here what those early stages of the founder journey is going to look like what the complementing ecosystem is going to look like what the necessary complementary talent is going to look like as well so that's something that we're always looking at we're always um asking ourselves and it also helps us think about how we think about cross um, ecosystem interaction as well how do we bring together um complementary needs I think you can look at that from a regional perspective. I spent a lot of time looking at accelerators nationwide and the growth of accelerators as a cue for innovation in a city. Um, and you can look at something like Tennessee, you see like Memphis versus Nashville, or you look at kind of Baltimore and DC and like trying to see kind of independence, but then also regionality showing up and then how are you doing something to kind of stimulate that cross connection um, to kind of make a healthier hub that's more sustainable, right, um, for the region. Mm -hmm. So I think... Um, and in, in the future, it's, it's a really interesting concept because I think every city is becoming an innovation hub because every city is trying to integrate technology um, as, a, as a workforce development approach, really. Um, and so the question is like, do they have the tools, resources, are they competitive as a city 
to be able to bring in those resources to their to the population that's there, um, which I think is really challenging. Because because yeah, NOLA has been around for you know, a, I mean obviously like it's been growing as an ecosystem for I've been you know sprinkles about it for the last decade really. Um, and Atlanta is interesting because Atlanta has um, a lot of new energy focused on the tech over the last maybe five or so years. They have probably the most, um, I think the Black Innovation Alliance did a study on like ecosystem um, builders. They have like the most kind of ecosystem groups and so on in uh, Atlanta, anywhere else in the US for, for Black founders. And, um, but yet there's very little venture capital that flows through Atlanta. So a lot of the companies that come through Atlanta leave Atlanta to raise capital. They don't raise it in Atlanta. Um, is that shifting? Are we seeing a shift there? And the same thing in New Orleans. Um, it's a pretty nascent venture environment. How how are they thinking about building and staying or building and having to leave to, to raise capital? Entrepreneurship is always going to precede um, the development of the investor community. So I think we're going to see these innovation hubs develop earlier than you see a bunch of investors set up shop here. So startups are still going to all of the, um, you know, top, top cities for venture to fundraise. Now, do they move to those cities? Do they move their operations wholesale? I don't think so because in a post sort of virtual move in mass era, people are seeing the goodness and um, efficiency in having virtual distributed teams. But yeah, I, I would think it would be increasingly very uncommon for a founder to fundraise and not step foot in one of the top five, top 10 cities for venture. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I think that, and what people don't, I think, I think people don't really understand fully either is some of the language gets mixies. You have angels and da -da -da, friends, family, and then you have institutional, all the different kinds of venture capital, but even at an angel level, you're, it's still concentrated wealth. I mean, if you look at the, the way that mm -hmm. wealth is distributed across the US, it's, it, it's like you have to kind of go where the money really kind of is for the most part. Um, and so I think I've talked to folks who are in their city. I'm like, you kind of have to, you got to travel a little bit. You can stay there, but you got to travel a little bit, right? And 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 so how they get into those ecosystems. Um, so a couple of years ago, before, you know, pre-COVID, um, GAN, which is the Global Accelerator Network, they had put out like a annual paper, what whatnot, and they had said that um, angels tend to invest within about, I think it was like sixty or ninety mile radius of where they live. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's and true. And so the question became, well, what's the implication of hybrid or virtual accelerators? Because if I'm if I live in Iowa and I'm doing an accelerator in, in Boston, um, you know well, I have a harder time raising money because I'm not really part of that ecosystem. No one really can vouch for me. No one really is going to have to know me or see me around. COVID maybe changed that with with um, with everyone going virtual. But do you have any thoughts on that? Like, yeah, I would, I would just, yeah, I would just argue that that's like the wrong way to look at it. If Because when you go through the, you know, if you're not from Iowa and you're going through the Iowa versus like, let's say a New York accelerator, it's not that, in the time span of the accelerator, you're suddenly going to become a hometown hero and well-known locally. It's regardless, it is the network and the strength of that accelerator's network that is going to make you a trusted known entity for those angels. So it's not an either or approach, it's a both. So are there angels in your current network? Are there, you know, are there angels that are part of that accelerator's network? And I would also 
think it would be interesting to look at the data of how do angels invest? How does the footprint of where they invest change as they are more tapped into global accelerators? Um, but then also there's always going to be institutional investors. Your angels will help you close around. They're probably not going to lead around. We see all founders have some mix of the two camps um, of funding. And so it's, again, it's not an either or, it's a both. And so which one's going to give you the best visibility and the best shot at, a, at the most robust investment strategy possible? No, that makes sense. So what would you recommend for founders who are maybe not in that city or whatnot yeah. and who are trying to get access? Loca- location doesn't matter and it never will as you choose an accelerator. Again, I think it's about who's leading it. Like when I first joined um, Techstars, a fellow MD that uh, had, that was here in Continuance Beer for a really long time, they told me that the founder really chooses the MD. So I, I don't think it's about location. Um, I think it's about who's leading the program and how they believe in what you're building, how they understand the space that you're building and how relevant their personal network is to you in addition to the overall um, network of the organization. But I think location is one pass at it, um, but it's not everything. And then also there's the founder reality perspective, right? This is why hybrid accelerators are a really good thing and they're really equitable and inclusive because not all founders can pick up and move to a city for a certain period of time. There's an assumption about a level of resource availability that they have to do that. So, uh, you know, I think this, like, is this better than that? Like, uh, that's not really the conversation I'm interested in because, like, my glass is always half full. Like, there should be more of all of the different types. Well, I think to your point into the question of kind of, you know, what what they should do, what what I was working toward was around, there's a lot of founders. So, you made a really good point, which is kind of why this show exists, which is like, what's the MD? Like, how, who's the MD? And like, why are you, yeah. you know, and this matters a lot more, most likely for um, equity-based uh, accelerators where you're actually getting funding because a lot of programs are educational, right. right? But what we right. find is that most founders are not really assessing the MD. And then we, they get into programs where maybe they do a tech source or something else or whatever they do. And maybe they get that capital, but they don't have this relationship with the MD. And so they leave the program. And they're like, well, who do I call? And my first question is like, well, don't you have an accelerator network? Aren't there like tons of people in that network? No matter what the program is, aren't there alums? Aren't there, you know, staff? Aren't there like speakers, panels? Like honestly, there's people. And they never really think about going back to that ecosystem to tap it. So what are the recommendations around how to build a relationship with your MD? Because it's not actually assumed that they always are doing that or that's even happening. And that is, that's just a life skill, like building relationships. As a founder, you have to know how to build relationships with people because you can be part of a network. And that means that there's something about you that makes you a known entity, but we still have to build a relationship in order to build trust and credibility, right? Because every time you, just for founders, every time you do an accelerator, whether it's equity-based or not, like we all have this opportunity cost. And even for networks and mentorship, there's an opportunity cost. And so you're always doing that calculus of what's the, you know, what's the correlator, what's the opportunity cost of, of doing this and of helping here. So, you know, learning how to build relationships, it's an essential skill. It's going to help you hire the best talent, get the best investors, find the best advisors, it's effectively sales. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I love that. Cause I think that's something that again, part of this was to illuminate 
how the MD thinks so that founders, you know, knowing what whatever position they're in, obviously the best companies are going to have the best access to the best things most often. And they've built that capacity, but there's a whole bunch of folks that are kind of sitting there going, Oh, you know what, if I just did this one thing it would have made the difference. And I didn't know that, or, you know, and I can kind of apply that to what I'm doing right now, or I'm going to decide right now, I haven't thought about how to build my mentor relationship with the MD. And I actually should think about that, right? Because I, that's not something, um, what, what I've seen is that folks who do it, do it naturally, mm -hmm. or they do it kind of when they need something. So it's the urgency. Um, and then, but as a, just a general practice or way of being, as like a skill that you learn, it's like, I'm going to just become this thing and do this thing. We have to make sure to call that out to people like, oh, you can just do this thing. You can kind of build the capacity to be a relational in nature and how you connect with everybody, right? I think that's something that's, that's, uh, needs, needs to be called out. So, okay, we're almost at time here. But any last questions? Um, I have like one more for you, um, or two more for you. One's a quick one, one's a little bit of a long one, and then we'll 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 call it. So you talked a little bit about um, revenue and, and and kind of growth metrics. Um, one of the things I hear founders struggle with a lot is the question of, in the short run, revenue versus growth. So am I, you know, am I building a user-based platform where I'm not going to really drive any revenue? Do I need to flip that model in the short run? What kind of economics am I looking for to kind of uh, look like the right structure for a venture venture investment? Um, and so you had talked a little bit about from the from the um, revenue um, perspective of like looking at your funnel and thinking about okay, well, how do you maximize or or your funnel and retention, all these different things. I'd love to just get your thoughts on how an early stage founder should think about those things. Should they be focusing on growth? Should they be focusing on revenue? Because they can always flip to growth later. Do you have any perspective on that? It really depends on your specific space, the available financing, um, how, you know, what your competitors are doing, and what is the timeliness of the different things we're trying to that you're trying to achieve. So we tell founders all the time, like timing, timing is a big factor when we look at startups that are interesting or perhaps less interesting for us right what's the timeliness of what you're solving and if it's evergreen then we have to ask ourselves like well is it interesting to invest now can we wait because as an investor you always have the benefit of of time um and you know also looking at the funding environment because we could have said that two three years ago everyone was focused on growth and capital was so so relatively available and cheap mm -hmm. that all right focus all on growth, but, you know, savvy founders are going to understand the sort of signal flags for their industry and then the specific challenges their business may or may not be running into and understand how to push and pull those levers to balance between growth strategies and between strategies that are focused on more short-term profitability. Because ultimately, as a founder, what you're doing is building a resilient business. And if there is just a absolute drying up of capital, then you got to focus on profit because revenue is going to carry you through. Right. You're right. So are you a KPI or an OKR girl? Reference? I'm a have something that you're tracking that's quantifiable <laughs> at some interval. And if you feel strongly about calling it one thing or another, like, sure. But once we're, once, if we're having the conversation, I'm happy. Right, right, right. I, I've heard so many arguments about it. And I'm always like, honestly, like, it doesn't really matter. Because if you're getting caught up in the nomenclature and, and kind of those things, like you're kind of missing the, the point, which is just like, what as a founder do you use as like, 
the two or three things that you use as levers to make decisions as a founder mm-hmm. and then at the stage of growth. And so that makes sense. Exactly. Um, okay. Last question. So you're spending a lot of your energy pouring into founders um, mm-hmm. to support their growth. So what do you do to relax, recoup, breathe um, after tough conversations or important conversations? Like how are you filling your cup because you're giving it to everyone else all the time in terms of support? wellness and a focus on your own wellness and health is so important. And so there are just really simple things that I do. Like my, my first hour of the day is for me and me alone, whether that is movement, whether it is reading, whether it's, I don't know, watching father of the bride for the 75th time, like whatever that is. um, I think creating space for yourself. And then also I saw a great, I want to say it was like an Instagram real video somewhere in the explore page. And then the phone refreshed and I lost it for forever, but it was this really awesome insight. Someone was talking about um, how we avoid burnout and the fact that we think of everything we have to do from a task management perspective, as opposed to borrowing project management principles for how we think about budgeting our own time and managing and context switching. And that has been really helpful, but overall, like, I think I also make a lot of time for, for joy. Um, so my family, my health, uh, the arts and different philanthropic things that I am passionate about, like mm-hmm. I make sure that my calendar reflects that mm-hmm. and that balance is a really good thing. And communicating that I think is a really good thing because for the founders that I work with and for the investor community that I'm a part of, to the best of my ability, I want to model um, what I think balance and, and good good personal hygiene looks like around wellness. Yep, but that's 100%. not to say I get it right. Like I think there is a myth that you're all in alignment and balanced and, and achieving everything all the time. Like absolutely not. Right. And but so once it works was, for you, just like find your joy. Find, find your, yeah, joy. Find your and joy. It's, and it's a, it's a net average. I, I think at the end of your life, exactly. you look back and you're like, was it a net average? It's not that every single day is equally distributed, right? It's just right. that you feel good about what you're doing. Net all in, there's more positive than negative. And I think I think that was a great way to frame that. Like, you know, make you know, make time for joy, put joy in your calendar. Like that, that's a that's a really founders we we're working so hard you know, and we kind of confuse mm-hmm. sometimes obligation with passion, with joy, like as these things are called like kind of intermixed. And so it's really important to find that space because the joy will actually ripple out and make every everything you're doing better, easier, and everyone else involved with you kind of also make it better and easier for them as well. So I think that's that's a great way to kind of end this as well. So um, thank you so much, Melissa. This is wonderful. I really appreciate your time today. Um, and everyone listening and watching, I will share this on all the on all the internets. And we'll do that as well. Um, so internet. have a wonderful on the internet. Yeah. So um, have a wonderful day, everyone. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Accelerator Insider. Thanks. Bye.